Well, what is it that makes a truly great speech? It's a message that's spoken to people who are eager to listen. It's a message that will make people change their behaviour and their attitudes. It's a message that gives insight into the attitudes and beliefs of a society. And it's a message that will change the future of those who hear it. That is how we define a great speech. And if that is the case, then we're getting one of those each day at 11 o'clock. Each day's glad rap speaks to the people of New South Wales about the current threat, the planned reaction and the outlook of hope. And right now we need to listen to it intently so that we'll be told what we need to know right now. The message of our Premier is directly relevant to us right now. And what she says affects our behaviours right now. Now, even though that Gladys is a fine public speaker, delivering her daily updates without reading any notes, it's an amazing feat, I think it's unlikely that her words will stand the test of time. Uh, if Jesus hasn't returned by the next century, I doubt that our great-great-great-grandchildren will be studying her daily updates in their history classes. But if they did, those speeches would still be relevant to the people of the 22nd or the 23rd century. They wouldn't be applying those words directly to themselves a hundred years later. They wouldn't read the speech and think, oh, I suddenly need to put on a mask or I've got to stay within my LGA, whatever that is. In that sense, the speech would not be of direct relevance to them. It wouldn't be of direct value to them because the words didn't apply to them. But in a sense, the speech would still be of value. It would help those future historians understand what the people and the society were like in New South Wales in 2021. Yet any words that Gladys spoke may still bring comfort and hope in the future, depending on the timelessness of her speech and the and the power of her words. Well, today we're going to look at a kind of a three-week mini-series that's part of our maxi-series on Matthew's Gospel. It's a series on the so-called Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It is probably Jesus' most famous speech of all. It's given people wisdom and hope for nearly 2,000 years and it continues to have an impact to this very day. But unlike what we expect of the daily updates of our New South Wales Premier, it's a speech that has truly stood the test of time. But it's also a speech that's generated lots of discussion and debate. And most of the talk is, what do these words mean for Christians today? Because obviously these words of Jesus Christ are for us today. That's why they're in the Bible, of course. But how exactly should we apply them to ourselves today? I mean, some of them are very straightforward, but then you get a verse like this. But I warn you, verse 20, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I thought those teachers of the law and the Pharisees were super strict and super legalistic. So how can we possibly surpass their righteousness? And what about that bit where it says that you need to 
to leave your sacrifice at the altar at the temple. And, and we don't have an altar. We don't have a temple. So how does that work for us today? And what about this bit, verse 29? If your, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I mean, sure, it's not literal. But if that bit is not literal, then what about the other bits? And how do we pick and choose which ones we apply to ourselves? And what about the last verse of today's chapter? But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do we do with that? I'm not perfect, and so what do I do? I say, well, I'll give it a go. Does it work that way? The big question for us is, what do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? Do we just do the bits that we think we can reasonably do? like being the light of the world or, or turning the other cheek? And do we just skip the bits that are impossible or unreasonable, like cutting our right hand off? I wonder if you can see the problem. Either we take every word as applying to us right now, or we just pick out the bits that we think we can achieve or that we think we can try to achieve. It's a big problem, and you can see why it is a debate source of debate for all the Christians as we sort of think about what to do with it. But, you know, it doesn't really have to be that hard. Uh, it is actually quite simple to understand when you read it like we've already been reading through Matthew's Gospel. And that is that we need to see that Jesus is the Messiah for Israel first. Uh, we saw this back in chapter 2, verse 6, For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. We also need to see that Jesus is the true Israelite. You know, he spent 40 years, 40 days in the desert, just like the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. You know how they had that thing there. But his temptations didn't lead him to sin. And so because of that, he is now telling the people of Israel, chapter 4, verse 17, the chapter before our one tonight, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So what we need to see is Jesus came to Israel and he represents Israel. He came to Israel and he represents Israel. That's where we're up to right now. We've done four weeks. We've done four chapters. And so when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we've just got to keep going reading the way that we have been. And so chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we read that, one day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Pretty simple. He leaves all the crowds behind. He goes up a mountain, and he teaches his disciples. He's teaching his chosen disciples, the twelve, the, those who are the embodiment of Israel, the people of God. Now, later on, some other crowds will come in and he'll teach them as well. And no doubt there were some Gentiles there amongst them. But for now, he is speaking to people living in the last days of the Old Testament. Jesus is speaking in the last days of the Old Testament. Which means he's not speaking directly to 21st century Christians. He's speaking to 1st century Jews. Okay? 
And what does he teach them? Well, he starts off with what's known famously as the Beatitudes, which is just a fancy way of saying the blessings. And he speaks about those who are poor, who mourn, who are humble, who hunger for justice, who are merciful, who are pure, who are the peacemakers, who are persecuted. What's he telling them? Is he saying that they need to be more poor or more humble or more pure or more persecuted? Well, not specifically. He's actually speaking to people who are already in that situation. And more than that, he is speaking to Israel, whom God has already described as being the poor, the humble, the pure, and so forth. And so, for example, Isaiah 29 Verse 19, it says, The humble will be filled with fresh joy from the Lord. The poor will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And then a few verses later in verse 23, For when they see their many children and all the blessings, the blessed are you, the blessings I have given them, they will rejoice the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob, the Messiah. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. You see that? They will see the blessings and then they will see the Messiah. And from Isaiah 61, a little bit later on, it says, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed, Messiahed me, Christed me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. And to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who... Mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. And this is just a couple of the different references in Isaiah to the poor, the hungry, those who mourn and all those that were spoken of there in the Beatitudes. Which means that Jesus is basically saying you are blessed because of what you and all of Israel have been waiting for for so long. It's now happening and you are blessed. Jesus is telling Israel that they are blessed because the Messiah has come. Israel is blessed because the Messiah has come. And in the Messiah, in Jesus, the Christ, they will be comforted. They will inherit the land. They will be satisfied. They'll be shown mercy. They will see God. It is all happening now. And what a blessing it is. And so with that in mind, let me just read out verses 3, three, to, 3 to 12. And you can see what we're talking about. Jesus is up there. He's teaching the disciples this. He says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who are mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Rejoice. Be very glad. 
for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. It's a word to the final generation of Old Testament Israel 2,000 years ago. It's telling them about how they'll be blessed by Jesus. And it tells them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's a message for them at that time and at that place. But as we see that, we'll see that it also applies to us. For as we join with Israel in being united with Christ, who is the true Israelite, it will apply to us. The message is that if you as a Gentile join Israel in following Jesus, the true Messiah, you'll get those blessings too. They're not the blessings of great wealth. They're not the blessings of perfect health and all those temporary fleeting blessings. They are the eternal blessings of following Jesus. That is what he promises us. And one of those blessings is the blessing we get when people mock and persecute us and lie about us and say evil things about us because we follow Jesus. It might not feel like a blessing, but it's what we can truly rejoice in as we are part of the body of Christ. And speaking of persecution, please keep praying for Christians in Afghanistan right now. I read reports this morning that Christians are being forced to show their mobile phones to the Taliban. And if they've got a Bible app on them, then some of them are shot. Right now, many followers of Jesus are meeting him face to face as they are martyred this very day. They are blessed. That is the true blessing. And no religious thug with a machine gun can take that blessing away. Keep praying for Christians in Afghanistan. Well, there's plenty more to cover in chapter 5, and obviously we're not going to be going into it in lots and lots of detail. But now that I think we understand the main thrust of the whole chapter, we can look into it a bit more and see it's not that confusing after all. It starts with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth.
All right, sorry about that. I wonder if you've actually been able to hear me and see me. And is that going to Vimeo now? Hopefully it's still going. All right, I think it is. Okay. The wonders of modern technology. Well, I'm going to go back to the bit with the salt of the earth. Um, perhaps if, uh, Jacob, you could flick that slide up on the screen for me. Someone is now texting me, I feel. And he says, yes, and all good. Yes. So am I back? Am I back? Mandy, do you want to text me to say you're, that we're back? <laughs> all good. That's good. Yes, all good. Okay. Well, we, uh, we learned a few things about our tech department just then. Terrific. Okay. Two new messages. Yes, Brad Vitalini. We're back. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, everybody. This is live. You know that. You know it. And it seems that our, our link has continued on. Um, okay. Gibbo says, yes, you are. Gemma says, you're back. <laughs> are you, is, is it on Facebook? If it's on Facebook, that's even cooler because it hasn't broken the link. Awesome. All right. Where was I? <laughs> We're talking about the salt of the earth. Are you with me? Okay, take two. Right. Let's have a look at, at verse 13. Um, because now that we've had a look and seen the way that the Beatitudes work and how it all fits in together, we can see that, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavour? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. See, Israel is the salt of the earth, the salt of the land. But they've lost their saltiness. They've lost their permanence. They've been sent into exile away from the land. And so what they need to do is they need to turn back. Israel needs to repent. Israel needs to turn back to the Lord. And verse 14 to 16, it says, You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Israel is supposed to bless all the nations. That has always been the plan. Just like the lights on the hill of Jerusalem shining out in this high hill to everyone else, but they haven't. Now is the time for God's people to shine. Now is the time. And as the disciples of the first century lead Israel back to her Messiah, they will then shine those blessings out to the whole world as they make disciples of all nations which, spoiler alert, is what we get to in the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Go make disciples of all nations, baptising them, blah, 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 blah. But next, Jesus tells them that his job was to fulfil the Old Testament, not to throw it away. He says in verse 17, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. 
What he's saying is he is fulfilling Israel's law, not throwing it out. Jesus is doing what Israel never did and never could do. He actually was about to accomplish the purpose of the law. He came to fulfill it. But Jesus thought that the law of God was good and that keeping it was great. Verse 19, he says, So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He was the man who obeyed God's law fully and who taught them. And that made him great in the kingdom of heaven. And that's really important that he did that. Because no one in Israel was able to keep the law. Even the super duper, super strict Israel Jewish leaders. Verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for some people, this verse has been demoralizing or confusing. Because either you couldn't work out how to be more righteous than the super Jews, or you felt shattered because you knew that you weren't good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. But that is why Israel needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to represent them as the true Israelite. And then to exceed the righteousness of the super legalistic rulers. Israel needed Jesus to represent them as the true Israelite. They needed Jesus to obey God's law and to keep them and to become great in the kingdom of heaven. Because when he did that for them, he made it possible for them to receive a righteousness that was not of their own. A gift of salvation they could not earn. So the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon for Jesus' Jewish disciples. Spoken before his death. As they represented the last days of Old Testament Israel. But because of that, we who are Gentiles can share their salvation with them. Because Jesus is the true Israelite. But with all of that, with all that caveats in place, we now look at the second half of this chapter, which basically says that the teaching that Israel believed or taught or thought that they'd been taught was no longer right. In some cases, it was adequate. And in some cases, it was, it was distorted. Jesus came... To say that his message as the king of the kingdom of heaven was a complete upgrade and update. When it came to these things, their beliefs and actions were not enough. They were not enough for the people in the kingdom of heaven. And it starts with murder and anger. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. They were told. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, 
you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in the danger of the fires of hell. See, if someone thought that it was enough just to, just to tick the boxes about avoiding killing someone, and, and then as a result of that you're all good and righteous, well, then you've got another thing coming. God always looks to the heart. He looks to our motives. He looks to our attitudes. Jesus was telling these tick and flick Israelites that they needed to repent of their hard-hearted legalism. And they needed to actually have a heart of a true member of the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus was ushering in as he preached to Israel and then died for them and died for all who believed in him. And what was true then is still true today. Jesus said that if you hate someone in your heart, if you're angry with them and you call them an idiot, then your actions and your attitudes are as bad as murder. Which means that everyone is guilty of murder. And that's why we need Jesus to be the one guy who never hated anyone. So that he could represent Israel. And so we then could receive his righteousness. But it also reminds us that people in the kingdom of heaven should seek to avoid hatred and anger towards others. We should be people who seek peace and reconciliation, especially with a fellow Christian. Verse 23 to 24. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly realize that you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. See, we don't have an altar or a temple anymore. But in whatever way we show fellowship with other people in the kingdom of heaven, we need to seek reconciliation with those who have something against you. We should always seek reconciliation. Because after all, Christ Jesus brought us reconciliation with God the Father when he had something against us, namely our sin. And so as people who have been forgiven much, we should forgive others. That's a message that was true for the last of the Old Testament Israelites. And it's just as true for us Gentiles who are united with them in the kingdom of heaven. And this follows, verse 25. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. That's more wisdom for those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Settle differences quickly. Settle differences quickly. Don't take it to court unless you have to. But now we move to radical words about lust. Verses 27 through to 30. Jesus says, You've heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If these verses were all about being good enough to avoid hell and get to heaven, then we'd all be in hell. We don't get into the kingdom of heaven by remaining lust free because nobody could. We get into the kingdom of heaven by Jesus remaining lust free for us. But as members of the kingdom of heaven, we should still seek to be lust free. We should seek to be like our Messiah was. And Jesus's point is not that we should literally cut things off our body, but that we should take seriously the need to avoid lust. What's one thing you can do this week to practically lead you to avoid lust? What's one practical thing that you're going to do? That's the call as we're in the kingdom of God. Well, next we turn to divorce. Matthew 5, 31 and 32 say, You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I, Jesus, say that a man who divorces his wife unless she's been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Divorce was a concession by God in his law for when unfaithfulness has occurred, when the the bond of one flesh has has been broken, it's been shattered. It wasn't a legal document that, you know, when you just didn't feel like you're your marriage is quite as nice as it was. You just sign this and off it goes. Marriage is for life, even when it's hard. The kingdom of heaven is about living life that is more than just tick and flick, more than just fulfilling the letter of a law. It's about the heart of it. Heart. Gave you a breather just for 30 seconds and stopped our hearts over here. (laughs) I was making the point that marriage is for life, even when it's hard. Kingdom of heaven is about living life that's more than just tick or flick, uh, more than just fulfilling a letter of a law. It's about the heart of it. And as people who are redeemed by Jesus, the true Israelite, we can now be inspired to live life following the spirit of the law, seeking to live as true members of the kingdom of heaven. And this includes situations where people might make a vow or a promise, but do it in such a way that it could be easily broken. You know what it's like when people say, oh yeah, I promise, but they sort of cross their fingers and behind their back. This is what they were trying to do. And Jesus says this. He says, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne, 
And do not say, by the earth, because earth is his footstool. And don't say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Life in the kingdom of heaven is about truth and honesty. It's, it's not about sort of dodging stuff, trying to get away with saying yes and really getting and doing the no. Life in the kingdom is about truth and honesty. And then there's one about payback, verses 38 and 39. You've heard the law that says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, then... If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. You see, a law was made to ensure that people didn't get a punishment that was way beyond their offence. It was never designed to say that you had revenge. These so-called law keepers ticked the box but missed the point. See, we should show mercy because we've received mercy. We should show mercy because we've received mercy. And it extends to being even more generous when we can. Have a look at verse 40 to 42. See, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You see, that, that is because Jesus is the true Israelite. He's made it possible for us to receive the ultimate generosity by the perfect life and death on the cross. And this is how it, what true love looks like. Verses 33 and 44. He says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, remember, we are all born as natural enemies of God. And yet Jesus died for us. Jesus loved his enemies. And so should we. And we should pray for those who persecute us. That's impossible, right? It's not when God's spirit leads us to live as members of the kingdom of heaven. And what's more, God's kindness extends not only to his friends, but also to his enemies too, as we see in verses 45 to 47. He says, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what a reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. This is where we get the so-called doctrine of common grace. Atheists get nice things from God as well. God lets them live in a beautiful place like Jamboree. And to have love and health. And all sorts of other blessings. See, common grace means that atheists get blessed too. Not only Christians have nice weather on their wedding day. 
and some of us don't. And every time an atheist has a nice time, we must remember that God shows love to his enemies. And as members of the kingdom of heaven, we should do the same. But in all this, this is what we should be like. Our final verse, verse 48, but you are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Right? (laughs) The love that God our Father has for this world is a perfect demonstration of his perfect love. That is what we should show to others as well. But we need to know that we won't do it perfectly. We won't do it perfectly because otherwise we would never have needed Jesus. But as people who have been saved from hell... By the perfect life and love of Jesus, the true Israelite. We can now seek to be perfect in his strength, knowing that we will still fail. But our aim isn't just tick and flick. It's to exceed the law in every way, seeking extreme love and mercy, just like that shown to us by our Messiah, Jesus. Our aim is to seek extreme love and mercy. You can see why the Sermon on the Mount is still studied 2,000 years after it was spoken. And you can see why it was so influential. Most lists of the greatest speeches in history will include this speech alongside the other most famous speeches throughout time. But what makes it truly great is that it shows that life in the kingdom of heaven is a life that comes from grace and leads us to be living a life of grace. A life of grace. And alongside the people of Israel who gladly accepted Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, we too can be comforted, satisfied, shown mercy and be called the children of God. Let me pray.